The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we who are your people with confidence draw near to you to talk to you. As was prayed earlier, you are the Lord over all of the creation, the maker of heaven and earth, everything. And we can talk to you. That is amazing. And so we come right up next to you and speak to you in words that you understand. Some audible, some just spoken with our hearts in confusion and in need. And Lord, I pray that you would meet every question and every doubt and every fear and every longing, that you would meet that this morning with good news of your work in Christ. Make it clear, Lord, from this passage, from the songs that we sing, from what this weekend really and this day is about, you have come to redeem and it has been done. Work's not yet completed, you're coming back, but you have done the first and biggest piece. Redemption has been accomplished, and we praise you for that. And I come into your presence now and ask you to press it home into people's hearts and the places where they have need to encourage and to excite and to stir and to comfort and perhaps to convict and to draw and to save, perhaps Lord, some here, this is the day they will come to know you. Do whatever work is needed in each individual's heart here this morning. Gracious Father, send your Spirit here in power into this room. Take the words from your Scripture. Make them run. Make them live. Turn our hearts and our minds towards you. Do a work that brings us great good, great rest, great hope. That brings you great honor as people come to be worshipers and come to worship you more deeply and as your church is built, drawing it to, as we sang earlier, to proclaim clearly and with great hope, you are risen from the dead. We are united with you. And in a profound sense, all is well. All is not well in many ways, but in a profound sense, because you are risen and we are yours, all is well. Give your people faith to see that and to walk in it in hope and in joy. Use the passage this morning towards that end. Build your church and glorify your name, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. This morning, as we celebrate Easter Sunday, celebrate the resurrection of Christ, we're going to consider a passage from the Gospel of Luke. A familiar passage, a story told in much detail as it slowly, slowly, slowly unfolds a mystery. It's a secret that, that we are in on as we read it. We, we see it all. But it's slowly unfolded for the two men who are walking back dejected on the road to Emmaus. As we 
walk with them and identify with them and step into the story with them, I think what we find there is an important note of hope, encouragement and and excitement and and perhaps conviction and perhaps a life-changing moment for you. I I don't know. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you're coming from, but I'm thankful that you're here and I pray that God speaks in his word to you this morning. I'm going to read this entire passage, verses 13 through 35. And then I'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand some of the details before making a few observations from it. I'm reading from Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. It's the passage, Luke 24. The text begins on the day of the resurrection of Jesus, the first day of the week, what we would call Sunday. And it's been three days since Friday when Jesus was killed on the cross. And earlier in this chapter, if we had started before, we would have read about the the events that these folks mention here. Women going to the tomb, no body, 
Angels there saying Jesus is risen, others running then afterwards. That all happened, and on that same day, these two decided to leave Jerusalem and go home to Emmaus, an insignificant place within walking distance of Jerusalem. They're headed home. And on the way, these two pilgrims, they'd likely gone up for the Passover feast, they are talking about everything that had happened. That's emphasized in the first few verses. They are going back and forth. They are, they are almost debating. Not that one's taking one side and one the other. They, they are working all of this through. Something significant is, has happened, and they are chewing it. Not just shooting the breeze. They are discussing. And then Jesus catches up, verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He's not disguised. He's no different. Supernaturally, they are kept from recognizing him. He's in their midst, but they can't see him. Something kind of loaded in that for the rest of this passage, I think. And he asks them, what are all these things that you're talking about? It's not his opening comment. He's been listening to them discuss. He plays dumb and says, what are you guys talking about? And they stop incredulously, mostly sad, though. That's how verse 17 ends. They stood still, looking sad, downcast and crushed in spirit, depressed. Are you the only pilgrim to Jerusalem who does not know about these things? What things? Wow. Clueless. Well, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And they go on to describe the facts about him and about their hope that's now dead. Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in deed and in word before God and man. That's high praise. That's language that fitting in the Old Testament would apply to Moses. He was a great and powerful man. And we had hoped for more than just a prophet. We had hoped that he was the prophet who was to come, the one like Moses who was to come and redeem Israel. We had hoped, and the language emphasizes an expectant about to happen, we had hoped that he was the one who was about to redeem. However, other things that happened, our chief priests and our leaders turned him over and killed him, and he's dead. Three days gone now, it's over. We had such hope, but it's, it's all gone. But then there's this oddity, not a note of hope, an oddity. They're still dominated by sorrow. They're standing there, they're, they're still sad, and they've known this all day long, and they're still sad. There, there's no hope in this. There's just amazement. This is weird. Verses 22 to 24, the body's missing. Two groups of our people, our women first, they went there, they couldn't find the body, and they say there were some angels there that said he's alive. And then others of us went, and they didn't find the body either. Bizarre. There's no hint of belief there, just confusion. There's no hint of belief, which is why, next sentence, Jesus chastises them for unbelief. Verse 25 is not sympathy, and it certainly isn't a compliment. You foolish people, slow in heart to believe 
prophets. It had to be this way. They told you so. And then, start to finish, from Moses all the way through, he explains all the things concerning Christ. And they are sufficiently impressed that they want him to stick around when it comes time for dinner. He's going to go on. They ask him to stay. And they, they probably recognize him as some sort of man skilled in the Scripture, some sort of a holy man. And they offer him, though he's the guest, you host the meal. So he's the one who says grace and who breaks the bread to pass it out. And at that moment, their eyes are opened. Again, supernaturally, their eyes are opened and they see him and he's gone. He vanishes. And then what's their focus? Not the meal, note. Not the meal. Not the revelation of him in the fellowship at the meal. Their focus goes back to the road and the Scriptures. Did not our hearts burn within us back then when he was talking on the road about the Bible and what the prophet said? Something was beginning to stir then. I didn't know it. I didn't understand it, but something. And that's what they emphasize when they run back to Jerusalem and, and meet now the church that's, that's had other encounters with the risen Jesus. They meet him, and the first thing they say, they told them about what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's the passage. I'm going to make three observations about this, all of them related to Easter and the resurrection, obviously. Here's the first one, which when I, I say it will sound plain as day obvious, but it's what commands our attention on this day in this passage. First observation, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's what this day is about, Easter. That's common language all throughout the land today. You've probably heard that a hundred times. We've sung it in every song. But the danger is that knowing that, thinking that, we're going to move right on past it and look for something else in this passage where this passage is trying to impress upon us, no, really, he was raised. We must start here and if we stop and look at this, we find here something exciting, something encouraging, and perhaps, depending on who you are and where you are, it's perhaps something very helpful for you this morning. Towards that end, for it to be exciting and encouraging and maybe helpful, we need to see how totally unexpected this is. The central tension in this passage, what this is all working around, what, what kind of creates the mystery here is that we know something they don't. We know they're talking to Jesus, that they're walking with Jesus, talking about how sad they are that Jesus is dead. We know that, but they don't. They are debating and hashing through these things, crushed in spirit, while well, the answer is right there in front of them and they don't see it. They should have, as Jesus makes the point in verse 25, you should have, the Scriptures told you about this, but they didn't believe it. In fact, they didn't really even understand it. They are dragged, eventually, into the awareness of and belief in the resurrection of Jesus in the face of mounting physical evidence. Before the weight of the evidence, they come to believe it. This is important. 
There's something here that, that is perhaps a little obvious, but it's important. None of the early disciples, none of the early followers of Jesus believed this right off. Do you notice how they're all processing the facts here? These two men, they're expressing their own perspective, certainly, but when they use language like we and some of our women and our leaders, they're speaking for the whole group of the early followers of Jesus, speaking about all of them. They, our leaders, delivered him up to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was about to redeem Israel, but yeah, that's not going to happen. He's dead three days now. And get this, some of our women amazed us. Not amazing, Jesus is risen. Not that. But amazing. They couldn't find the body, and some angels said he was alive. Weird. Hmm. They are not speaking with any grain of hope. None. They're standing there saddened. They do not say, maybe he has risen. There was no body after all, and the angels said he was alive. They just say, that's odd. Quite surprising, really, with long faces and downcast spirits. That's their attitude. You see that. Why is that important? Why is that important? Or, to use what I said earlier, why would that be exciting and encouraging and perhaps even helpful to you? Because these are not people engaged in wish fulfillment. Do you know what I mean by that? Wish fulfillment. People who have a wish, who have a theory or an idea or a teaching or a philosophy that they believe already and then look at all the physical evidence in front of them and try to twist it and turn it and, and shape it and make it somehow fit in with what they know must obviously already be true. That's wish fulfillment. I start with the philosophy and then I make all of the facts fit my philosophy somehow or another. And if the puzzle piece doesn't fit, I cut the corner off and make sure it crams in there. That's not what's going on here. These are not people who have become persuaded of an idea. Not people who believe something and then turn to the physical evidence and make it work. They don't believe in the resurrection. All of them. Do you see how then that makes their eventual testimony to us all the more compelling? They are just like you, these first Christians. They know full well dead people don't come back to life. And they know full well he was dead. He was killed by a professional military execution unit who had done this before, who knew how to do it and knew that if they somehow messed it up that they themselves would be liable to the same punishment. They knew these guys were dead. They stabbed him in the side with a spear to make sure he was dead. And they broke the other two guys' legs because they weren't quite dead yet. They were dead. And they ripped him down off the nails, put him on the ground, gave his body over to a guy who wrapped him up in cloth and put him in a tomb three days ago. 
He's dead. And everybody knows dead people stay dead. So whatever happened exactly, whatever the women are talking about, I mean, I don't know quite what that's about. It's kind of weird. Whatever they think they saw or think they didn't see, whatever the angels perhaps might have been talking about, whatever the other guys went and missed out, whatever that was actually about, what it wasn't about is Jesus coming back to life again. Because that don't happen. got to be real clear about that. That's where these guys are all coming from, and that's why they are crushed in spirit, because they had hoped that the centuries-long promise of redemption finally is here, and it isn't, because he's dead. Dang. I mean, you see, that's where they start. Until, by force of logic reason and physical evidence they are compelled to believe something totally different they came to see with their own eyes all of them eventually these guys later at the dinner when their eyes are open and then they run back to Jerusalem and, and Peter saw with his own eyes and if we were to keep reading the following verses we would see Jesus appear to the whole group of them and sit down and eat with them and we read the rest of the New Testament we find that hundreds and hundreds of people for 40 days saw him with their own eyes, touched him with their own hands, smelled him with their noses as with their own arms they drew him near and embraced him. Physical evidence that compelled them to believe the unbelievable, which they do not believe. The Scripture said it, sure, but they didn't believe it. But Jesus, crucified, buried, has been raised from the dead, reigning over his kingdom. That's a fact. Told to you now by those who themselves couldn't believe it, but had to, or else they would commit intellectual suicide, denying the obvious. Nobody wants to commit intellectual suicide. So they had to believe that this guy is alive. You would do well to note that. That should be exciting and encouraging and perhaps even a little helpful to you because this Christian faith, this biblical Christian faith, and it is indeed a faith. There is indeed an element of trust, a critical, crucial element of belief. But the exciting thing here, the encouraging thing, and maybe the helpful thing for you this morning, if you're thinking about whether or not this is a trustworthy religion, maybe the helpful thing here is to realize the beautiful thing about biblical Christian faith is that it rests, when you move back, it rests on fact, historical reality different from every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world has a guy who goes off into a grove of trees or off into a cave or up onto a mountain and receives some truth and then walks out and tells people they must believe that. This one has hundreds of people who taste, touch, and smell something that they don't believe but have to 
because it's blatant and obvious right in front of them. Physical. Vastly different. And these people were so compelled by it. And it was so clear to them, hundreds of people in the very city where the execution happened, and spoke of it then boldly to the very people who did the executing. If there's ever folly, that's it. Or, or bold confidence because, hey, kill me. I don't care. I'm going to live again. He is alive again. Prove he's dead. You can't because he is alive again. That's the boldness and the confidence that the early followers of Jesus persuaded against their wills came to embrace and then to show and there was never any refutation of it, never any rebuttal of it because there couldn't be. It was a fact. A fact. There's plenty of denial of it. Certainly plenty of denial of it. For sure. Back then and today. Maybe even you. That's possible. Ask yourself, this is the testimony. We are one step removed from the eyewitness. This is the testimony of a whole bunch of people who say what they saw despite what they thought. What's, what would be missing? What, 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 are you, what, are you, what else are you looking for? What other kind of evidence should there be but there isn't? May God open your eyes to this important point. Everybody throughout all of history that has heard this testimony and has rejected it, has denied it, never refuting it. You know the difference in those two words? To deny is to say, I don't believe it. To refute it is to prove it wrong. Never refuting it, just denying it. Everybody throughout all of history that has denied this testimony has done so without evidence. Follow that. Has denied it in the face of the testimony of hundreds of people and has denied it without evidence. That is not a problem of intellect. That is a problem of will. Pure and simple, I don't want to. It is not intellectual unbelief. It is unbelief of the will. If you don't believe it, it's because you don't want to. And the reason you don't want to is that there's too much at stake if you do. Everything is at stake. If in fact this one has been raised from the dead, he is Lord, as he said, which means that neither you nor I are. It means he is in command. It means that he has been raised to life, controls death, and controls everything, including us. It means that he is the one to whom we are accountable. Carefully examine your heart. 
And may God open your eyes to this fact that you reject it because you don't want it. And may he open your eyes to the question, maybe create a little bit of doubt in you, that perhaps your own selfish bent there is not actually in yourself's best interest. Because this same one who has been raised and reigns as Lord, the whole reason behind the cross and the resurrection is not to just to establish Him as Lord. He already is God before it all starts. The whole point of it all is to accomplish the redemption these guys had hoped for and mourned because they misunderstood. The cross and the resurrection provides, puts in front of us the great and glorious, desirable redemption of human beings. And to reject it because you don't want to is to reject hope. May God open your eyes to that. He point out to you in anti-intellectual rejection of the facts. May He point out to you pure and simple, willful, self-afflicted suicide. I don't want His redemption. I would rather be in charge of myself as I perish. I've got to open your eyes to the folly of that. There is redemption on the table here in this cross and resurrection, and that takes us to the second point. Because Christ lives, His people are redeemed to life too. Because Christ lives, His people are redeemed to life too. The hope that these two men had in verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. That hope seems lost, but it only seems lost because they misunderstand what they're looking for. They misunderstand what redemption actually is. Verse 25, Jesus says, O foolish one, slow of heart to believe all the prophets said. Was it not necessary? That's a question. It's actually a statement. It was necessary that the Christ suffer these things and then enter into His glory. The Scriptures made that clear. Why didn't you believe it? That's what He's saying. Jesus is affirming that this, the suffering and this resurrection, is not a change in plan. It's not plan B. It's God's plan all along. Told throughout all the Scriptures. Necessary, in fact, given the problem that God's seeking to address. Given what He's doing in redemption, it's necessary that it work like this, suffering before glory. Why did the Scriptures speak of the Christ suffering and then entering into His glory? Then, afterwards, subsequently entering into His glory. Why did he have to be condemned to death and crucified before he's raised and reigns? Because of what redemption is about. Most Jewish people of that day would have understood redemption 
the, the removing of someone out from a, a place of bondage or un, out from under a yoke of oppression, most would have understood that as being in relation to a physical people, a power that's over the people of God. Think of, for instance, Egypt. And Moses redeemed the people out of Egypt, pulled them out of the bondage that the Egyptians were exerting. Most would have thought of it that way. And so when God sends his great king, when God sends the Messiah, the Christ, and he works redemption through his king, what he's going to do is he's going to take the people of God who are oppressed, who are bound, who are enslaved, and he will set them free. He will redeem them out from bondage. Like, for instance, right now, Rome. But when Rome kills the, this one that we thought was the Messiah, that obviously is not going to happen. Rome won. That's why they're all downcast. They misunderstand. But the Scriptures and the prophets see redemption and bondage very differently. Sure, there's physical bondage. Sure, there's people who oppress people. That's not the main problem in the world. People need freedom and people need release, most importantly, from the destructive power of sin. The death grip that it has on us and the final judgment of God that it makes inevitable on us. That's the big problem. The bondage that sin holds me and you individually and all of us corporately holds us under and the wrath that it invites and makes, in fact, inevitable falling on us. That's the big problem. We need to be set free from sin and curse. Moved out from underneath of that. That's what the prophets said and that's what the prophets said Messiah would come to do. Everywhere, perhaps most famously in that passage in Isaiah, chapter 53. Listen to a few of the lines. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just pulling out a few lines from that chapter. Surely He, the Christ, has borne our sorrows, stricken, smitten, Afflicted by God, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The problem that we have is that we are bound, we are locked, and we are objects of wrath. And the prophets over and over again say, you must be set free from that. And then in steps Christ who takes that for us, who takes curse for us, punishment for us, and removes this weight that sits on top of us and, if you will, kind of holds us, removes it off of us, and takes it onto himself for us, in our place, for our sin. That's the language again and again and again. On him for us. Afflicted by God, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. On him the Lord has laid our iniquity. He was cut off from the land of the living. Not just suffering and beating, but suffering to death. Cut off from the land of the living, stricken for, on behalf of, in place of, the transgressions of God's people. 
He makes his grave with the wicked, crucified between two criminals. Is buried with the rich in a rich man's borrowed tomb. Crushed by the Lord, he makes an offering for sin himself. This is in the prophets. Why didn't you believe it? I told you all along, I am indeed going to redeem my people from their real problem of sin and curse, and I will do that by sending my Christ, my Son, to take on Himself that which should fall on you to set you free and bring you peace to redeem you in His death. And the chapter continues, and yet He shall see His offspring, His children. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Christ crushed and killed, dead in a grave, and yet seeing His children after Him, prolonging days that seem cut short, prospering where He seems to have been destroyed. This is perhaps the most profound passage in the prophets, but by no means the only one. Over and over again, the Scriptures make clear A people imprisoned by sin and under wrath will be set free when God sends His Son to die in their place, to take their curse on Himself, and to rise victorious to give them His life. Everywhere. That's what He said He would do, and then He sent His Son judged and condemned, hung on a tree under the curse of God. Like Deuteronomy said, the problem is sin. To redeem from sin, He sent His Son. Sent Him to the cross to die for you if you believe Him. Now, that's all just a claim about some stuff. Just like everybody else claims things about stuff. You must see the critical difference between biblical Christianity and every other religion is that the claims about the stuff, if you work back, work back, don't come back to some guy who said, this is so, believe me, Come back to a guy who said, this is so, believe me, and if you don't believe me, at least believe me when I come out of the grave alive again, please. That ain't going to happen. Look. Look. Christ has been raised from the dead. He died under the curse of God and was brought out of the grave approved by God Alive, miraculously, amazingly, that redemption might be offered to you even right now if you will believe. And please be aware, if you do not believe, it is not because of any evidence. It's because you don't want to. That's it. God, open your eyes to the fact of anti-intellectual suicide. 
May he open your eyes to the fact that you are turning away from, if you say no to this, you're turning away from all of the hope and all of the joy of the ages into eternity presented to you right now fellowship, life forever with the God who is all good and all joy, who made everything right and has promised when I redeem, I make it even better. There's an offer there to you. Believe and live. And if you don't, you don't. He has been raised after his suffering and he sits in glory and is coming from there to judge the living and the dead. This is the explanation that the Scripture gives to the fact of the cross and resurrection. And it's to the Scriptures that we turn in our third point. Here's the third observation. Even better than by sight, in the Scriptures, God reveals Christ to us for our hope and joy. Long, I'll say that again, slowly. Even better than by sight, in the Scriptures, God reveals Christ to us for our hope and joy. The point of this is to say, don't be disappointed that you can't see Jesus right now with your physical eyes. You actually have something better. You have the Bible. Hope and joy in Christ is still available to you in the Bible. Now, obviously, the, the physical appearance of Jesus to these guys and then to all the other believers is critical. It establishes the fact. I was talk, I've been talking about that now for a while. It's obviously a massive and important point. However, their testimony to us about that comes to us through the Bible. An obvious point. We haven't seen it. it comes to us written down in the Bible. Some of us may be inclined to wish that we could see with our own eyes. And apart from the fact that that logically is impossible, that Jesus would be forever resurrected in every place on earth and every day of every year to every person, physically, logically, that's impossible. Apart from that, it's not necessary. It's been written down for us in the Scriptures. And ironically, in this passage where Jesus is about to reveal himself physically, his emphasis is on the Bible. He hides his physical identity from them for quite a while. Why? For the sake of verses 25 through 27, and verse 32, and verse 35. They despair because he's dead and because God's hope for deliverance has gone, vanished, and Jesus does not say, good news, guys, it's me, I'm alive. That would have solved a whole bunch of things, like 30 seconds into their meeting, wouldn't it? He does not do that for the sake of verses 25, 6, and 7, 32, and 35. 
He wants to build in them something that's far more important than giving them evidence with their own eyes. He wants to build in them attachment to and trust in what God's Word has said. And so he shows them. He, he goes through the process of showing them the Bible. You foolish ones, he says. Not, look, look. But look, you foolish ones, you have the Scriptures. You can trust the Scriptures to be the faithful interpreter of life. You can trust the Scriptures more than you can trust your own eyes. And then he explained the Scriptures, taught the Bible to them, where verse 32 says he opened the Scriptures to them, illumining what was there so that they could see the truth in the Bible before they could see it with their own physical eyes. They are attached then to God's Word, and they realize God's Word is truth. God's Word is reliable, and they experience something. Notice, after he reveals himself, 31, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished, 32, and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? Not a word about the dinner. Their hearts, they both acknowledge the Bible he opened the Scriptures. God illumined the Word, and it began to move. And I don't understand everything, as obviously they didn't understand everything yet. But something, despair, downcast, sad, and sorrowful, was beginning to turn to burning from the Bible. Illumined by God, driven into the heart, creating fire. Hope and joy. They don't get everything yet, but they get something from the Scriptures. And that's why Jesus held off to show them it's in the Scriptures. You don't need physical sight of me to actually meet me. I can tell you everything concerning me, end of verse 27, the things concerning himself. I can tell you everything concerning me from right here. Now, I'm a really good teacher. You don't know why yet, but I'm a really good teacher. But I'm going to show you from here. And that's really good news because I'm going to leave and this is going to stay. And then I'm going to send you my spirit. He's a really good teacher too. And you will have the same tool, and you will have the same God who will be able to show you continually the plan of God from start to finish, fulfilled in the will of God to kill the Son of God, to remove off of you the wrath of God, to give life to you, the people of God, for your joy and for your hope forever and ever and ever. And you still have the source of that hope and joy. That is good news. You don't need to see him with your eyes. You have the Bible even better. That also should encourage you. And it should tell you where to spend some of every 24 hours. In the Bible, looking for Jesus. To 
put an end to your misery and sorrow when you can't see, as will happen tomorrow and next week and next month, when you can't see the redemption of God. Yeah, you, you know more than they did. You know something of it. But it, as you look at life, it seems like life's lost. I can't see. God, will you show me all the things concerning yourself? And you have the tool and you have the Spirit. He will teach you. He will illumine you and bring to your heart burning. Now, it is not, it's not on wish and command. We're not God. We're dependent on God to illumine the Scriptures, either Jesus physically or, for us today, the Spirit, who lives in and illumines the Word and makes it clear. We're dependent on that. He doesn't work on our beck and call. But he does work, and he does use the Bible, and he does open it. And that means you can see him and know him. And hearts filled with joy and hope are possible for you. He will bring up to you again and again and again the message. Starting in the, in the Mosaic books, moving through the prophets, and now for us, moving through the New Testament the end of God's revelation, start to finish, He will show us this is what I am about, your redemption, and it has been accomplished. Why so downcast, O your soul? Put your hope in God. You shall again see Him, your salvation and your God. This is good news. In all sorts of trials, when we lack physical sight, He still shows us Himself in His Word. Christ has indeed been raised. Christ's, Christ's raising accomplishes our redemption. He still speaks to you about that today in His Word. Go rejoicing in hope. people of God. Go rejoicing in hope. Whatever else is going on today, some of us are going to walk out of here and you're going to go hang out with some people that you You'd rather not. Some, some of us will, will spend blessed time with, with people who are dear friends and family, but some of us won't. I mean, it's going to start, you know, right now. And whatever else happens when you go back to work or when you, you head back into your normal life tomorrow, may you have eyes to see what comes out of the Scripture under the tutelage of God the Spirit. That He has been raised and has redeemed you if you are His. And if you're not, come and live. I'm talking to Christians here. He's redeemed you. 
You are alive with him. And whatever else happens, that is the, the massive paradigm that sits over all of your life. You are alive forever. And you should not stand sad just recounting these facts. They give you eyes to see. He's been raised. He has redeemed. He's coming to get you one day. Let me pray. Lord, help us, your people. First, I pray for us who are your people. You help us to see and to not just recount the facts, but to hope in them. Teach us, Spirit of God. Show us Christ, the risen Redeemer. Open the Word to us today and tomorrow and all of next week. Feed us from the Word for joy and hope. And Lord, some here, I imagine some here don't know You, and I pray, awaken them to the truth. Call them in and save them. Would You work redemption here today, I pray. Build Your church. Honor Your name. Save human beings. My prayer, and I say for all of us here, thank You, Lord, for what this day, this weekend's about. Redemption you've accomplished. You're so good. We love you. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.